All right, so we are live with the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, my name is Noah Adam, and I am here today uh, with three, one, two, three, three of my friends. That sums up about 90% of them. Uh, and we are going to be discussing the 2008 uh, Canadian horror film Pontypool. So you could say that this is a podcast on Pontypool. It's a Pontypool podcast. Ponty, Ponticast, Pontypoolcast, pra, pra. That's a joke. Uh, if you've seen the film, uh, you know that uh, you know that uh, this movie is 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 kind of a complex film. It's it's uh, it's a horror movie that tends to deal with language and um, symbols and signifiers and a bunch of stuff that typically isn't in a horror movie. Um, it's a really good rendition, a really good telling of a zombie film. Uh, However, these really aren't zombies. They're kind of, uh, I think the director actually calls them conversationalists, which I, I appreciate. Um, so like we always do in this podcast, we tend to distinguish between enjoying a horror film and appreciating it, much like we would a good scotch. So we enjoy it. We mix it with Coke. We, However we like it, we put our feet up, enjoy the horror film, kind of let the aesthetic speak to us, put our feet up, and just kind of kick back. So we're going to start the podcast by talking about what we liked and disliked about the film, and then we're going to do the appreciative component. We're going to get our nosing glass out. We're going to sift it like connoisseurs. I, I sound so unbelievably, uh, stupidly sophisticated for horror films, but we're going to appreciate it. That's the point. We're going to talk about what the fear is in this movie. Is it a scary movie? Um, what's so scary about it? And what are some of the underlying themes uh, uh, in the film? So uh, general thoughts of this movie. If I, you know, minute and a half, two minutes, just general thoughts about this movie. Uh, what do you guys think? I will sh throw this one to Shayra. So this film started out for me where I was thinking, am I watching the Welcome to Night Vale um, podcast, which I regularly listen to. I'll continuously listen to when I go to sleep. So I'm going to be honest. When I first turned it on, before the intro even was over, I passed out because I go to sleep to Night Vale all the time. So I had to watch it again. Um, and, but yeah, it's, it's a very, um, calming, it, I don't know why it's ten, it has tension, but it's calming. I feel like it, uh, relaxes me. So a lot of it was just, it felt comfortable, like a warm blanket. And I just want to snuggle up with the film all the time, but it also had my mind racing with tons of ideas. So, um, it's, it's strange. It's relaxing yet gets your mind going. So, um, I, I did enjoy it though. I think this is probably out of all the films we've watched probably one of my favorites so far so um we'll see how everybody else felt about it on being their favorites but um yeah i i don't know it, it was a weird awkward that's not, not surprising no not surprising i there was a uh, one of your buddies on your facebook when you tagged yourself watching it had said hey i actually fall asleep to this film a lot and i was like oh my god i do that like <laughs> i was like I, we're so weird right but i think it's it's very comforting it is it's like a blanket um everything takes place in a single room um, the audio is compressed heavily. Like when he's by his mic, it sounds very, right. It sounds very radio-ish and it's kind of soothing and kind of calming. Um, yeah, there's something to it. It's a perfect rainy day film. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's interesting. We should explore that. So when it comes to this movie, I don't think that I got it the first time that I watched it. I watched through and it left me with this feeling that I really wasn't exactly sure what kind of movie it was trying to be, right? So you get the impression that it's maybe sort of like a zombie film but it's not really a zombie film because the, the monsters or, you know, the, the conversationalists, perhaps, I guess might be a better word. Uh, as you mentioned, the director referred to them as conversationalists as opposed to zombies. Um, you know, what's, what's supposed to be going on there? 
Um, you know, I didn't catch a lot of the finer points, but on the enjoyment aspect, I think the thing that I enjoy most about it is how much it grew on me. So I watched it one time, you know, I thought about it, I read a little bit about it, then I watched it again, and then it got a little bit better, a little bit more interesting. Um, and even a third time watching this movie, it just kept getting better and better, right? <laughs> and even like a, what you're talking about, people falling asleep to this movie, yes, Stephen, uh, the actor that plays Grant, um, he, his voice, yes, absolutely perfect radio voice, so I totally get that aspect, but it doesn't really relax me. It doesn't put me to sleep because it leaves my mind sort of racing and kind of twisting and turning around all these different aspects that I don't really catch, you know, the first time and the second time. It just leaves me thinking. Um, it's, it's actually the kind of movie that would leave me up awake at night, uh, just sort of pouring over the details over and over and over again. So yes, absolutely a really enjoyable film. Not necessarily the first time, but that third time. And the more you really think about it, 100%. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So yeah, I, the, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting distinction to start off with, just the fact that having it on in the background tends to make the, the, all the cogs and wheels turn for you, even if it's on in the background. Um, it, it doesn't for me unless I really give it effort. Like I can just kind of like put my little things over my eyes. I actually don't do that when I go to sleep, but I'm just saying like in theory, I could. Anyway, I could put those things over my eyes and just kind of listen and not hear maybe. So there's some Ponty pool in there for you. Um, what, about, uh, what about you, Ben? What did you think of the film overall? I enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, speaking of uh, listening and not hear, uh, the first the first bit where the film really got my attention was in the pre-lap leading up to the title card, um, where we have uh, where uh, where we have a story overlapping story overlapping story overlapping story until it becomes white noise, and then we have a, a very dissonant, um, nonsensical series of pronunciations of the title leading into. And here's this word that we've just heard 10 times. Um, uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, if <laughs> my, my six word synopsis, which I already tipped, um, George Romero's critique of pure reason. Um, <laughs> Kant is all over this movie. Uh, Kant is all over this movie. We have, uh, uh, we have a realm where meaning resides uh, that is transmitted and transmissible through uh, through specific language artifacts, like in this case words. Um, we have the capacity of uh, we have the capacity for a uh, human agency to actually damage that realm. Um, I, I I love it. It's it's fantastic, and I, I think I'm actually going to be uh, um, sending this to people as okay before we get into uh, before we get into some of the southern stuff just watch this um and use this movie about people you know bashing their brains out on a sound booth um as a good jumping off point the the sound booth thing right the fact that this is the this is the place where where you know we uh we send information out to the masses uh, I think even in that, uh, e there's a scene where he even refers to um, he refers to the sim uh, the uh, the radio station as uh, under uh, what is it? I think I wrote. Hold, let me see if I can find it. Uh, da -da 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 -da. Something about drum, but we're here under the sound called drum or something like that, um, which I thought was interesting. It's kind of like you know the sound booth and the radio station is kind of 
it's it's that interpretive thing that goes on in one's brain when they're thinking between words and symbols, right? So, for example, there's parts of this film where, you know, um, where Mazzy and uh, Laurel Ann and Sydney are trying to figure out what's going on outside. They, they they don't see anything. They're trying to figure out through people calling in and through auditory means what's happening outside, as it were. So they're doing this kind of interpretive thing. And then depending on the accuracy of that information, their assessment of that accurate, the accuracy of that information, feed it over to Grant, and then Grant sends it out into the world. And I thought that sort of itself struck me as a kind of metaphor for our processing of, of really the world and through communication. Um, I, I, that's one of the things I noticed uh, when watching this film. I'm trying to find the exact quote. Down here in the dungeon under the street they call drum. I felt like that was completely purposeful. Um, it's sort of how we're trapped behind our physical apparatus, like our eardrums, essentially. Uh, we're, we're limited in, to some degree to our bodily perceptions and how, we, uh, and how we talk about those perceptions, right? The noises we make. Um, the other thing I noticed is that language kind of evolves in this. Um, so, for example, uh, I have notes here about how they sort of describe what's going on outside. It's almost like... Um, you know, there's a, there's a herd going on, and then there's a riot going on. It, it, they use these different words interchangeably, and they're actually very different. They all have very distinct meanings. Um, and I think I counted like five different ways. It's, it's a mob, right? They're unruly. And then unruly becomes uprising, and then uprising becomes riot. Um, so there's all these things going on. All of these words kind of mean different things. So there's all these different words used to utilize sort of a singular event that's going on outside of their radio station. And I thought that was interesting. So I just thought it was the first few things I noticed when I was watching the film that I thought were, uh, were important. And also Ken Loney being a pedophile, that, that, uh, that was important. That was so, I was like, this is perfect. Actually, since you mentioned it, I, I have to say this part, it's probably skipping a million steps, but I did write a whole thing about that. Um, it says, uh, I said, uh, they were already, like, a lot of the people in this town were already kind of white trash. Um, you, you know, just a, your typical, you know, lower income type, small town type, you know, kind of podunk type of people. The, the cops were drunks. Ken was a pedophile. Like, none of these people were, like, described as good or or helpful or nice. There, there was nothing positive yeah, to say sure. about any even the people she was crying over she's like oh, i'm so sad they're dead and it's like oh you were close now he's a pedophile i just known him forever <laughs> so it's like whoa it's um I, I that really struck me in that film um it, the loss of life wasn't about being close it was about being comfortable with the same thing being the same all the time we are now officially going to get hate mail from the city of pontypool uh <laughs> awesome it's not us it's not us it was it, it blame the movie. Uh, we're just discuss, uh, we're discussing Ponty Pool, the work of fiction <laughs> that in no way reflects the people, the fine people of Ponty Pool. Um, but uh, I, that that struck me, uh, Shira. That struck me as well. That um, all of the relationships that we explore here are. Um, they're not relationships of preference. They're not relationships of principle, they're relationships of habit. Um, 
why is it, this person is in my life because this person has been in my life with steady, uh, steady repetition for such a long time. And now they're suddenly gone. The habit is, uh, the habit is broken and the habit is ultimately what's missed. Um, and I can't help but feel that there's some intentional play in to that, uh, from that into the relationship between the speaker and language that we encounter in this movie. Um, the, the first sign of infection is the repeated word, 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 word. Um, and, uh, well, I, I don't know. Do we, uh, do we want to go, uh, do we want to go into, uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Wittgenstein, um, the 10 second version, uh, the one that's, uh, de facto affirmed by this movie by virtue of the fact that there is a realm where meaning, uh, linguistic meaning resides and that it can be infected and that it can, by virtue of that infection, transmit non-linguistic effects to our realm um, is uh, kind of this idea that there's a space that's not really space, that's just made of meaning the way that our universe is made of atoms. It has its own rules and it has rules that govern its interaction with our world. Um, the extreme opposite end of the spectrum is that language and meaning are just habits. Um, that uh, language and meaning are just uh, streamlining of habitual interactions between people. Um, that there, there is no such, really no such concept as a bottle opener. There's just the habit of asking for a bottle opener and a bottle opener being provided. There isn't an ideal form of bottle opener. The fun thing about Pontypool is it's kind of, you know, flicking boogers at both sides in the course of the movie. I think that it honestly was going in line with what you were just talking about because of the fact that the words that caused the virus to hit was habitual relationships and using the meaningless words we refer to each other as, such as sweetheart, honey, dear, darling, the, the meaningless nonsense words that we use to talk to each other uh, mm. that supposed to be like sweet, things to say to people, but they're, they're actually meaningless. They are pointless. Um, so I think, I think they were definitely in line with what you were talking about. At least if they didn't know about it, they accidentally stumbled upon that view <laughs> that we use a lot of our language in meaningless ways when talking with each other. And, oh, actually, you know what? I watched an interview with the guy who wrote the, the book and film, and he did talk about how there's a lot of words that we use that are meaningless and um, that's a huge problem in our society today that we become numb when we're talking to each other especially when we first meet each other when we first meet each other it's very surface kind of talk where you're like hey dude hey so sports weather yeah and it's meaningless conversation so he talked about how that that is what's going to trigger the stuff is the meaningless conversation. Yeah, it's interesting that the words that get infected are, are the, the, the gibberish-esque words. Uh, I thought that was interesting too. Um, uh, so the clocks in the sound booth, I don't know if you noticed this, but the clocks, I believe, are all in the same time. Clocks are all in the same time. Uh, and I think this goes back as kind of analogous to what Ben was saying on, on how we have these opposite ends of the spectrum. The film really, I think, starts with and works with the idea that 
you know, there's there's these there's signifiers of a kind of objective language and speech. There's there's right and wrong. There, words have these sort of tangible meanings that are out there, and yeah, there may be a little plasticity to them, but they're they they're out there. They mean particular things. I have this conversation all of the time with particular people of a political nature when we talk about words, when we talk about um, religious words, especially um, th- things that are solidified um, soci- sociologically, religiously, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of rigidity to particular words. And I feel like there's things in the film that sort of underscore that, one of them being the clocks in the sound booth, um, everything staying, you know, exactly the way it should be. And then working backwards from there, and, and we'll get into, you know, not understanding the word purposefully, right? Losing that objective meaning, changing that and moving it to something else, thinking of another concept to describe a particular word or thinking of another word to describe that particular concept, undoing the clocks as it were, uh, you know? Uh, that's one of the things I noticed. I was like, why are the clocks like that? It bugged me for the longest time. It was one of those little things I noticed. I was like, why? It's like four of them and they're all in the same, anyway. You know, there was one detail that I noticed, and uh, it kind of goes back into the reason why perhaps some of these terms that they used, the terms that triggered um, whatever it is that happened to these people, and the fact that they were somewhat meaningless. But these words were, you know, obviously words that were meant to signify some kind of personal connection to people. And I think it's really important to note that on the day that this movie takes place is Valentine's Day. So when you're talking about words like baby and sweetheart, I think there's a really important point to make that this sort of holiday, this, this creation by Hallmark and uh, you know, different companies or whatever to sort of capitalize on these kinds of emotions, repeating these phrases and words over and over and order, over again has sort of forced them into meaninglessness. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, and it, uh, it underscores the power of words too, right? That they, that they can motivate, well, I mean, in t- days of the year on a calendar, right? Um, that we can sort of wrap up uh, these particular phrases that we use for the ones that we love um, have an entire day where we send cards and flowers and there's an entire industry built on it, right? A lot of that is from the sort of language that we, we use between lovers and between, you know, spouses and things like that. Um, yeah, right? The, the Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue. It's for my religious people watching, like the two people who actually are religious who actually watch this. But it's totally true, right? I think that this film is a is a good. Um, I mean, it's maybe the pinnacle example of that. I, literally, the power of life and death is in the tongue in Pontypool. Did anybody else yell the the TV when they were watching this when she was on the phone with her daughter, going "Sweetheart, honey, sweetheart, honey, sweetheart"? I was like, "What stop, are you doing? Stop, stop it!" Yeah, yeah, uh, abs- absolutely. That was a uh, "Why are you going up the stairs?" kind of moment. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was. Uh, so many, um, and this is, uh, this, this doesn't fall into the two camps kind of approach to, to language. It's, it's more general, but uh, the, uh, so, much, uh, so much of our language, so much of our communication um, is a, a signaling, grouping, um, declaration of affinity. Um, like uh, uh, I can be talking to Noah for 10 minutes, and the only thing that we've actually really said is, we, yes, you, me, yes, we, there is we, there is we, there is we. Um, are you part of this group identity? Yes, I am. Are you part of this group identity? Let me check your credentials. And there we go. Um, and that, that uh, in, it just in terms of word count, <laughs> um, constitutes the overwhelming majority of casual human conversation. Uh, 
And so this this idea that uh, that the language virus or the meaning virus, and there's there's an interesting discussion I'd love to hear is uh, maybe come down one side or the other on: is it language that's infected or is meaning infected? Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, and uh, to Tyler, the other Ben, uh, uh, other Ben's point um, that uh, that this is Valentine's Day. I think absolutely not coincidental. Um, but, uh, one of the, one of the things that really strikes me, especially about this spearing back and forth between, okay, uh, is language a transcendent realm from which we, in, uh, a, a conduit to a transcendent realm through which we, uh, receive meaning or is language just codified habits? Um, I like to think that the, in this movie, it's both. I like to think that this is the postmodernist's nightmare. Like, uh, uh, Noah, hearkening back to what we were talking, uh, what we talked about in Event Horizon, that there is no God, but there is actually a hell. Um, <laughs> in Pontypool, there, uh, it's the other, it's the other way around. We're all postmodernists, you know. Language is nothing but habit, until habit creates a a, a unit of perfect meaninglessness, which reveals that there was a transcendent realm of meaning the whole time and we fucked it all up. Actually, uh, there was an interesting thing that the writer had said about this. Um, he said that language is a mediation between people, but it's still foreign from you and yet it becomes you. And that was his, his take on what that virus actually is and that's how he tried to write it. Um, the fact that it's outside of yourself but is yourself. And that might be why there's this back and forth between it. Um, it it kind of creeps me out. I have to have to be completely honest. It kind of makes me uncomfortable on a lot of levels. So going back to so going back to what Ben said, uh, let's talk about this, right? So is it words that are infected, or is it is it understanding that's infected? Because the film implies that it's English that has the issue, right? So English has the problem. They speak French, they're fine. They speak other languages, they're all right. Why English? Why does English seem to be the language that's affected? Because, you know, when they're, when they're, so when they, when a word hits them, so kill or um, breathe, right? When that happens, it, the understanding I, has some sort of, they're, they're, they repeat the understanding it's, it's going on in their head. So it's only happening with English. So I want to say it's, it's literally the, the film is, is conveying the image that it's the language that's infected, but it also sort of implies that understanding it does something in that realm. It's almost are noises are noises as well because at one point she starts singing like the tea kettle and i was like wait <laughs> is she repeating things or is she just is that just part of the zombie brain melt that happens what was happening with the the humming at a high-pitched noise yeah i think that was i interpreted that as a result of the virus doing its work not like what brought the virus in, not the door necessarily, but once it was in and it was doing the damage, that was the noise that she was making. That that's how I interpreted it. Um, that'd be horrible, right? Because if if it's if it's just noises, then all languages are infected. Like utterances are infected. I read the tea kettle as the virus trying. Uh, a that is the virus's transmission vector exerting itself. Uh, the virus tries to pass to another person um, via language but is the language the virus itself the disease itself doesn't have complex linguistic facility so it just operates on imitation um it imitates a word that i uh, imitates a word that i hear noah saying and i'm trying to 
transmit an infected version of that word back to Noah. Um, in the case of the TKEL, it's an environmental noise that has no linguistic uh, 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 has no linguistic significance, um, which is, I think, part of why. Um, uh, remember that same uh, that same uh, that same victim uh, a little bit later on is trying to uh, mouth words to them. Um, it's trying to imitate lip movement and trying to mouth words to them and they're all like looking away, looking away because the, uh, the doctor raises the question, can, is it, can, does lip reading work if we, um, which uh, to me strongly, uh, strongly indicates that um, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, lexical, uh, a series of words, or whether it's um, more epistemological, it's uh, a kind of meaning, um, comprehension is the moment that transmission occurs. So um, would American Sign Language pass this or no? Would that be considered a different language? Absolutely. Absolutely. American Sign Language would, would be a successful for this virus. So I'm going to have to side on the, uh, the meaning side of this. I really think it's the infection is within the meaning of the word. And, and something that um, I was reminded of sort of in my, my research leading up to this after watching the movie um, it, it sort of seems like uh, the idea theory of meaning, if that makes sense. So it's something I kind of pulled out, and I might not fully understand that philosophy. But what it seems like is described is that there is a sign which can be thought of as a key, and then the meaning within us that already exists, which can be thought of as a lock. And so when you combine those two things, that's what sort of unlocks the comprehension and the virus as well. So the reason that lip reading, I think, would, would kind of work there is that when you're mouthing the word, you're still sort of building that, that sign in someone's mind, right? So like, you know, they're still comprehending this is what those sort of motor movements are attached to. So going back to sign language, I think, yes, that would absolutely unlock kind of the virus, but only if the person was a hearing person to begin with. That makes sense because uh, it's that, uh, you know, the, the uh, not understanding it as a form of disinfection makes sense on, on your view, I think. Makes a lot of sense on that view. Uh, undoing common interpretations sort of closes it back up. So then deaf people would somehow be immune to the disease or the virus? No, would they? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think so. But you know what's great? Really... The writer has already written part two and part three of Pawnee Pool. And they're just looking for funds to do it. So who knows where <laughs> the hell craziness he could go to there. <laughs> yeah, that always that always makes me nervous. That how cool would it be to have like a trilogy of films like this that are done well? I I just I uh, Hail Mary. I, I'm just gonna it's a Hail Mary. Doesn't usually happen though. <laughs> does not. Does not. Uh, please no. Please please <laughs> no. I mean we're gonna we're we're gonna have like Bruce Campbell with a chainsaw <laughs> hand attacking Noam Chomsky by the third one. Uh, That's just selling it to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, okay, yeah, Ben, would you not, if the poster was Bruce Campbell chainsawing Noam Chomsky, would you not go see that? Who would not go see that film? Holy God, that would be amazing. I would camp out overnight. So uh, the fear in this movie, right? This isn't a, this isn't a, I mean, to me, it's not a scary movie in a lot of, it, it, it's, um, we clarify what we mean, I guess, by scary and fear. This doesn't really give me any kind of visceral fear, like in Event Horizon, doesn't. Give me that fear of death, and it follows for me. It's a very different kind of fear. Um, it's it's a very 
it, it shows you there's nobody behind the curtain in some ways. Like that, it, there's a quote in the film that says, we were never making sense. We were never making sense. Um, and that's a little that's a little freaky to me. Yeah, you're, this this is one of those horror films that um, that that is both somewhat scary and humorous. It's like Drag Me to Hell in some ways. Um, but I, I think the fear in this film for me was like the fact that you can be cognizant of a process that's destroying you and you're aware of it, right? You're unable to stop it. You you know it shows that a large part of who we are as human beings is you know we're linguistic creatures and and that connection between mind and mouth, if it's taken away from you, sort of you know, degrades that as quickly as the virus does so in the film, it it's sort of you're a you're a viewer to it. Like you start to see yourself get locked in a room as it were and that and and start to gasp for air as it were as you start to repeat words. Um that's kind of freaky, right? The other thing in the film where they talk about, you know, repeating a word till it loses all meaning. I remember doing that when I was a kid a couple of times. And so I I sort of just sat down and did that now, like to like today, and I use the word breathe, and I was just starting, I just repeating it and thinking all the things that come to mind. I think the doctor in the film uses that one. Yeah, buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. For me, it was breathe, breathe, breathe. I, that really struck me as all the words that were infected in the film is when the doctor's like, oh, whoops, breathe. So I started saying breathe, 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 and I got to a point where like there was maybe like a split second where that word lost all meaning for me, and. I sort of took that moment and thought, these are what the conversationalists feel. That moment, if you could capture it in a bottle and sort of disperse it over however long they're alive until they find another person to sort of kill, essentially. That's scary, man. That's that's a free that sort of taking the understanding away from you, taking the understanding away from you is extremely isolate isolationary in a lot of ways. And it's almost like being trapped in a box and unable to breathe. Yeah, the fear for me, I think, is. There is some there's some connections in this to the other films that we've been doing, but I think really what it came down to for me is the the idea that there's a lot of movies that scare me in which you realize that there's nobody behind the wheel. Those sorts of, those sorts of movies kind of scare me, or, or the process. There's there's nothing objective about it, right? So like for me, it, it, Ken Loney is a big part of this in this film. I can't believe I'm saying that, um, but Ken Loney is super important in that regard, right? We find out you you have this you you think he's in a chopper. And the film you know, gives you the idea that he's up there flying around doing this. And then it's, it throws it off. He's, he's in his Dodge Dart. And so now you have all these other things that come to mind. Now you're not thinking of a helicopter. You're thinking of a Dodge Dart. Um, you know, you have all these. And, and the film sort of gives you these curveballs and makes you think different things than what you were thinking previously. And to me, especially with Ken Loney, it was, it was almost like the film was trying to tell me, hey, look, there may really be, and this may be the opposite of the way Ben is, is interpreting it. But for me, what I took from that is, not that it's the postmodernist nightmare, but that there's a degree of postmodernism in it. So basically that, you know, there really is, they're, they're shifting sands. There really is no genuine objective reference point that's out there that we describe with our words, right? So a good example, when I was a Christian, my uncle used to tell me, don't say gay people. Don't, don't use that word. Say homosexuals because gay, right, is a word that has a particular meaning. It implies a certain thing. And, and I noticed a lot of people in my family kind of did this. They, words are, were very rigid to them because of you know, different reasons. But, you know, there's a kind of people can be, for one reason or another, stuck to a very rigid way of describing things in the world. And they can get so much like that that they defend words over people, right, over, over things that are happening in the world. I, I, used, I think I used to do this, right? Uh, I used to do this as an apologist. And... Uh, yeah, this this movie shows, I think, through Ken Loney that really there's there's nobody 
behind the curtain that that the words that we use are somewhat ad hoc, right? I'm sure there's some historical reasons for and etymologies for all of the different words that we use, but to a large degree, there's no reason why we can't change kiss to kill or kill to kiss. Um, and I think reflecting on that is an incredibly important thing. Uh, I, I know people, for example, I know two people who uh, have had entire shifts in the way they see the world and including their own religious values because of studying rhetorical discourse, studying words, studying etymology. And that may not seem <clears throat> like they're connected, but I think it goes back to once you start to lose the idea that there are not, there isn't this realm of objective symbols and concepts out there to which we describe through our language, but that if there's something else going on, that deinterpretation does work in other areas of your life existentially, theologically. Um, that can be an incredibly impactful concept. And Ken Loney sort of represented that to me. He's not in a, you know, he, he's, he's fake. He's fake. Uh, he's not a nice guy. He's suddenly a pedophile out of left field. But I think that was important, right? He's not in a helicopter. He's in a Dodge Dart. This, all these curveballs. And it, you, by the end of it, you start to get the picture things change. Like there's not, your interpretation of things can change with facts, with data, with time. I don't know. Something's there. Consider that we have no greater verification of the French speaking military forces than we have of Ken Loney's chopper. Um, we have uh, an extremely, uh, we have a pinhole view of the world outside of this radio station. Um, so that's that's part of uh, for me it was part of the tie-in with the grand reveal that uh, one Ken Loney doesn't have a chopper he's in a Dodge Dart on a hill and two he's not a nice guy um, I don't let my kids anywhere near him uh, that that this applies ultimately to everything that out that occurs outside of this room um, the large numbers of people gathering around the doctor's office uh, the uh, uh, the series of deaths that we hear. Over, uh, over cell phone calls. All of this um, is subject to that same criticism. Uh, to that, um, that postmodern fall, which is what, what you're describing, that, that moment of maybe, maybe there isn't, maybe we are not tacking words and meanings to a cork board, maybe we are tacking it to a large wad of silly putty that we've hung on a wall. Um, what I find really interesting uh, about this movie and how it corresponds to that is the idea that first, in order for there to be a transmissible, uh, transmissible vector here, there has to be something trans-subjective about meaning. There has to be something about a word and its meaning that is more than mutually agreed upon habit. That is more than green is green because we both agreed to call that thing green. Because in this, in this case, the word is the only object of exchange. It is the only transmission vector. It is the only thing that came from me and went to you. And it only unlocks the disease only occurs in you when you understood it so there is something more than the habit of you know this is a bottle opener um language has something more to it than that and that and this is uh, maybe uh, <laughs> that is every bit as disturbing to someone who is on the other side of that postmodern fall as the postmodern fall is to someone who hasn't reached it yet. 
the idea that we run through language, we run through logic. Logic is nothing but syntax. There's nothing transcendent about it. Language is nothing but habits. And the bulk of human history is a series of accidents with no driver at the wheel. Okay, I can live with that. I've accepted that. And then, oh shit, there's something more. There's something bigger. There's something, maybe it's not capital G God. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not what I thought it was before I thought it wasn't. But there is something there that my current rubric can't explain. Um, every bit is challenging. Every bit is terrifying. Um, to the linguistic postmodernist, the idea that there is an Aristotelian realm of meaning is scary <laughs> and is the only way that I can make sense out of the events of this film. Yeah, I think you're right, right? There has to be, I, I see what you're saying now. There has to be an anchor. There has to be an anchor for that virus to latch onto, and that anchor can't be something that's just wildly subjective, right? If you're going to have a, a tangible virus that's going to affect especially a particular subset of people who who speak a particular language, you're right. I, I totally see that now. There, there has to be something there for it to tack onto. Okay, yeah. I think there is probably a realm here that we can sort of apply this all to without actually appearing, uh, appealing to anything Aristotelian, though. Um, and that might, in fact, be the culture, right? So the reason that it may only be the English language in this movie that, that has this sort of transmission factor is because of the way that not necessarily just Western culture, but like English speaking Western culture in particular, sort of jumbles up these words and throws them out completely haphazardly with no sort of thought as to the impact that it's going to have on the individual. Think back to um, Grant's meme or tagline on this, right? Take no prisoners or whatever that is. So to him, what this is going to mean is, you know, he's speaking the truth, no matter what the consequences are going to be. He's kind of this truth warrior. If you ask Sydney, what he's really saying is, well, I'm going to go on air and I'm going to make an ass of myself. What it might actually mean, though, is that in the larger context of this movie, and if you're thinking about the damage that he is doing to people, when he's saying he's taking no prisoners, he's throwing out symbols and words with no thought or caring as to how they're going to be interpreted within the culture that he's throwing them out to. Because we have to remember that he's a new guy in this small community. He doesn't know that you know ken or, or yeah ken is out there in a dodge dart he doesn't know that the police officers are alcoholics that has no sort of connection to him he has no idea what's going on there so when he's throwing out these words they're being interpreted entirely differently by the people who are listening to them because of their culture wow that's a really that's a really uh interesting thought right he's yeah he's he's he has a very 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 different set of understanding of these words i guess from living in a city or wherever he was before when he was a big time radio shock jock and then coming into a small town right uh you know mrs honey's cat is is missing right like he rolls his eyes right like he to him taking no prisoners means something very different very expansive and people in his small in the small town aren't going to understand it the same way yeah i never thought of that man you guys are much smarter than me that's why i love you um I wrote notes here that may actually uh, tie into that, uh, Tyler. So uh, there's a linguist, and you know what? Ben is probably going to know who this is, and I don't, and I'm hoping I'm not butchering the name. Ferdinand de Saucer, something like that. Ferdinand de Saucer. Anyway, there's this linguist that says, language is no longer regarded as peripheral to our grasp of the world that we live in, but instead central to it. Words are not mere vocal labels or communicational adjuncts superimposed upon an already given order of things. They are collective products of social, social interaction, essential instruments through which human beings constitute and articulate their world. 
So it's to, to Tyler's point, right? Small town versus, I don't know, large city. This typically 20th century view of language has profoundly influenced developments throughout the whole range of human sciences, and it's particularly marked in linguistics, philosophy, psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So uh, yeah, I, that kind of is a, is a good template to show how divergent words can be dependent on sociological factors. And then I guess the thing that makes, and this is very sophomoric of me, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but the thing I think of when I think of that is, is it, is the, is the difference in interpretation because of the social differences or are there social differences because of different, because of the interpretations? Like are the words doing the work or is the, the, the society to which those words have value doing the work? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like a chicken and egg problem to me. In terms of the actual pure linguistics of this film, what I loved about this movie is there's a lot of flowing phrases and rhyming. Your beacon in the region right? Uh, not full disclosures, school closures. There's like rhyming and these words flow very well. Like yeah, I noticed that I was like, I'm enjoying him talking, but why, right? It's not, it's not even all his voice. It's the words. There's a kind of smoothness to them, right? Like my wife and I have this ongoing thing where we list our favorite words, just the words that we love the most in the English language. So mine, I have uh, three. I have guppy, manslaughter, and I forget the third now. Guppy and manslaughter we'll go with. But there's like this thing going on in the, in the movie that has these kind of very beautiful flowing phrases. And that obviously was, was purposeful. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what is it that that phrase is that's, um, it's been described as the most beautiful phrase in the English language, cellar door. I, I don't know if you guys have heard that or not. Um, and I don't Some know. The, yeah, I don't know the explanation as to why that is. Um, but look that up, cellar door. It's a thing. I promise if you Google it, it'll, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll get some results. Undoing interpretations as a cure, I think, is a real important part for me in this movie. Um, my, just take my thing from this, my, my existential thing in the last few years has been uninterpreting things from the days in which I had a very rigid theological view. That uh, reimagining of various things, ethics, morality, theology, philosophy, metaphysics, ontology, all of that shit now, I'm still you know, de, uh, deconstructing it and trying to, uh, trying to, I uh, may be doing that the rest of my life. Maybe we all, we're all doing that the rest of our lives for some degree. You have a very, very Catholic harshness in your own assessment of your, uh, post deconversion <laughs> progress. Uh, you're not the first person to say that to me. Yeah, but there's something to that, right? Like this, it's so interesting that we took such a very, this goes back to all, almost all our films, man. It's like, there's so much plasticity to these films because to me, like I just thought it was incredibly obvious all of the, the deconstruction going on as kind of the main emphasis of the movie. And the way that spoke to me is just trying to figure shit out, like going, okay, if we realize there's nobody behind the curtain, that seems to be the running theme in all of my films that I've selected. There's no one behind the wheel. Oh no, what do we do? Right. Very Nietzsche. And how do we, how do we, you know, uh, who are we to wipe away the horizon, right? Like what's next? That sort of stuff is what I see in a lot of these films. And perhaps it's me going into them looking for them. But in Pontypool, you know, the sort of rhetorical discourse that we have, the language that we use, understanding that there's power to it and that removing it in certain ways removes that power. It, it, it sort of shifts social constructs. It's an incredibly monumental thing to fuck with. Um, and sort of, uh, thinking about like, what does that mean? I, I, I mentioned before, I know, I know people that, that just thinking about this was enough to make them go, you know what? Like, I don't know if I believe these really important truths about the world anymore. Now that I know what I know about language, what I know about rhetoric, what I know about discourse. 
sort of seeing that there's no, seeing that Ken Loney is not in a chopper, but that he's in a Dodge Dart. They can get poetic there. Yeah, I, uh, that's kind of what I got out of this, that disinfectant component, cleaning up the aftermath, as it were. Um, right, uh, that's what I took from this. There was uh, a couple of things that um, I was considering while watching it, and I'd like to know what you guys think. Um, do you guys think that Honey the Cat is the thing that triggered the virus, um, or that even him speaking about Honey the Cat um, might have started that? Oh, started the, uh, the process of actually like infecting the town and stuff? Yeah, I mean, that was in the beginning... Um, you see yeah. the, the flyer, it seemed to be a very important component. So, yeah, well, cats are, uh, intrinsically evil. So that could be accurate. That could be accurate. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I would uh, love, to, I would love to blame a cat for the, for all this. That'd be great. I, I can't blame a cat. I think it's Mazzy. I think he is, I, I think he was point zero. Um, and, uh, I'm. Uh, I, I took a very different, I took a very different interpretation on his motives, and I think he outlines them pretty eloquently in a monologue in which he states, for all intents and purposes, I don't care if it's me that pisses people off, um, because a pissed off listener is a tuned in listener, and a tuned in listener is going to, somebody I piss off is going to tell somebody else to tune in. And it doesn't matter if it's nonsense. It doesn't matter if it's gibberish. It doesn't matter if I'm ranting and raving about a missing cat or an alcoholic sheriff. I don't care. He has no investment in what he is saying, but pretends to. The take no prisoners is the lie. That's the lie in his identity. The, the, I'm I'm going to I'm going to smash through the barricades. It's it's uh, he's not a motivated crusader, but he pretends to be one, um, and that's that's to me that uh, that seems like the most likely kind of ground zero for where this thing got started. This guy whose whose very conviction is a meaningless affectation to to shock people into to tuning into a particular radio station to oppose a, a, an opinion that he doesn't even have. So would you, like, could, Ben, would you, maybe another way of saying this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it, per, perhaps the the origin of this was a kind of inauthenticity? I mean, is that kind of what we're going with? That that may be the origin of where this thing came from? I, I think it's convergence of inauthenticity and meaningless communication. I think uh, that's like, yeah, you've, got a gasol uh, you've got a gasoline truck, and uh, liquid, uh, liquid petrol, uh, liquid natural gas truck, uh, and they had a header on the freeway, and that's where we got this. And it just so happened that that header on the freeway was in Pontypool in in this film. Yeah, I think I'm still gonna blame the cat. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna well, have to argue. Do you guys do you guys think that everybody was already infected though? Were we already infected, and that's just what? Um caused the uh symptoms oh, like, to was pop it up finally was it dormant almost like a walking dead yeah thing. dormant yeah mm. well we all have the capacity right or is it just see that's the thing right because is it just the english speakers that have that capacity laying dormant right i don't know well i mean uh, one of the one of the reasons why i think english would be okay, let's let's 
let's take the fiction on its face and say that this is that this is actually the case and that virus is actually the appropriate metaphor um, that we're not talking about something like a that we're not talking about a more complex organism that it it operates like a virus it reproduces like a virus and it originates like a virus um, English is a language of incredibly diverse etymological origin. Um, of uh, languages in common use, it's one of the youngest, and it's one of the most etymologically diverse. We also have a uh, overwhelming number of loan words, not just loan words, but loan syntaxes, loan uh, loan conjugations, and uh, English is. For a linguistic virus whose origin would be mutative, English would be an incredibly rich growth medium. Um, far more so than something like Japanese, uh, Chinese, uh, Mandarin, um, uh, Cantonese, uh, any of these other languages that are uh, much, do not borrow as many words from other languages, do not borrow, see this is, where, where English differs uh, dramatically from uh, any of the Romance languages, from German, um, uh, from uh, most of the Asiatic languages, uh, English doesn't just borrow words from a given language or uh, point of origin. It borrows syntactical structures. Uh, some words we conjugate according, uh, according to Romance rules, uh, some uh, words we conjugate according to Germanic rules. It's it's a very hybridized language. So for something that needs stuff to kind of knock around at random, um, English would be where it would sprout. Well, that makes it really interesting because that that is almost even more fear-inducing because it's almost like that could be just be the stepping off point, the apparatus for the virus to kind of jump and maybe to German or to other things. Uh, well, they warned. They warned that spread. public service announcement. Do not translate this line. Uh, do not translate this announcement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm scared shitless to talk. Thank you. That's, that's, <laughs> great. that's great. I was laughing really hard because I just, um, I was thinking about, um, you know, we were trying to think of where it or the origin is. Um, we have this doctor, Doctor Mendez, which is an absolutely fabulous character. I adored him on so many levels um but he's a sick twisted fuck in a lot of ways i is he a mad scientist did he somehow create a linguistic virus like i, I really want to know where the origin of this came from i know they keep it a mystery but there's so many it's it's like a murder mystery like who's the murderer is it honey the cat that caused this or is it the is it dr mendez or is it just all somehow combined together just this horrible accident yeah, it's very um what I one of the things I really liked about it is it's almost like a play. It's almost like a, it feels like a play. It feels like a stage play, right? Um it's all kind of in one setting and it's it's a mystery. Everyone's like, "What? What?" And and, and you're right. Doctor, I felt like Dr. Mendez was overly purposefully overly rambunctious and happy. I at first I thought he was just a shitty actor. <laughs> Sorry. I just I totally thought he was a shitty actor, but then I, I the more I watched it, I was like, "Oh, this is so cute. Like this is really like it's cute." I just I I it was per it had to be purposeful. That guy probably never did film again, and he was like a buddy of the director, and like that's probably what happened. When he was running into the room, uh, we we know he's infected, and he's running in the room. There's all these zombie people behind him, and he's like, like he's so happy, like everything is gone to shit. He knows he's <laughs> infected. He's trying to avoid it by speaking another language, yet he's so chipper. 
just, yeah, everything's gone to shit. This is interesting and fun. And I'm curious and I want to figure this mystery out together. And it's, um, that's a very much, to, that's very much like originated with him because that's where the people yes. explosion happened. That's what I was going to say. Well, that's very much like the disease, right? The disease is very curious and finding its way through our, our particular words. And, and in the sense that uh, it's also, it, it uses these very um, cute little phrases, right? Uh, maybe the origin did come from Dr. Mendez. All these terms of endearment, these little cute little fun things, these little phrases that we use kind of reflect his character coming through the window backwards or seeing his ass come in. You know what I mean? Like all these, like he's just a really cute character. And the virus just so happens to start with infecting terms of endearment. And we all know from the story, the way the story is written, that, you know, that sort of the point of origin where we see all the conversationalists taking place right at his office. That's interesting. Maybe, oh, huge Pontypool conspiracy theory. Ready? Maybe Honey the Cat is actually at Dr. Mendez's office. All right? Maybe that's what's happening. Yeah. I went We there. are never told explicitly what he is a doctor of. He's a vet. Holy He's shit. He's a veterinarian. He's a vet. Wow. Who only went who only went into veterinary medicine after his career as a PhD candidate for philosophy of language collapsed around his ears. I I would pay good money to have that be the origin story in Pontypool 2. I just I'm just whoever watches this, that is what needs to happen in Pontypool 2. You know what was interesting? One of the notes I put, I actually, this last time, watched this film with subtitles on. That is so important if you watch this movie again. I'm going to tell you why. Um, clearly, it, it, it sort of brings in entirely new interpretations of certain things, but there's a fuck up in the film. There's a mess up. So the scene where Ken Loney gets attacked by Mary Galt's young boy, now, now that I know he's a pedophile, like that whole scene fucked with me. Mary Galt's young boy. I was like, oh, oh, like, whoa. Yeah, I didn't even like, it just dawned on me this last time. I was like, oh, you know, he knows Mary Galt's young boy, Jesse. Anyway, um, there's a scene when that happens, when he's trying to listen to Jesse, he says, uh, wait, wait, what? Wait, what? So the, the phrase is, wait, what? But the subtitle actually um, interprets it as wait, wait. Instead of wait, what? It's wait, wait. And I'm sitting here going, this is too meta. This is too meta. I have to turn this off. I can't, this is, this is totally not intentional and that makes it all the more horrifying. So go what check if, it out. What yeah. if the people that were writing up what, what the people are saying for closed captioning were like, yeah. ha yeah. yeah. maybe we'll think, we'll make them think we've been infected and we're going to type it up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's fuck with the three people on the planet who are going to actually interpret this this way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a, that's something we would do. I, that's something I think we would do if we were, <laughs> we were writing this. <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted to make one more point about Honey the Cat. Going back to the origin story here, I definitely kind of think my honest opinion here is that people like Grant, not necessarily Grant, but people like Grant are the catalyst for this cultural sort of language disease. Um, you know, going on radio in front of a lot of people and just kind of haphazardly using words in many different, essentially meaningless ways. That I, I think that kind of like sets up the problem. But Honey the Cat, if you go back into the original sequence, the very first sequence of this film, there's a line that says, everybody has seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the Cat. And I think that is a symbol for, for mimetics, for memes. I think, I think the poster itself is like a, a symbol for a meme, right? So you have this essentially kind of like this meta idea, this, this sort of transmission vector for these ideas and, and they get presented in many different ways, but essentially they lose their original meaning and nobody really sees, let's say it's a meme about a person and you have the person's image there, but you can, you entirely lose your perspective about that person. It's really just about the text here 
and about the text here at the bottom. I think that's kind of like why it's not necessarily the cat, but the poster of the cat is what sparks this as the match that sets off the cultural disease set up by people like Grant. Wow. Wow. You knocked it. There never was a cat. There was <laughs> never, there never was a honey, the cat. The this cat has a lie. This cat never existed. For all we know, it's a, it's a uh, poor old man or poor, poor old woman uh, remembering and desperately looking for a cat, like the, like the tragic Alzheimer's patient saying, where's Mary? Well, she died 30 years ago. Um, there never was a cat to oh find. Oh my gosh, and what was, what was the thing that the sea of people were chanting? They were talking about U-boats. It was, uh, they were all, they had all become senile or, or <laughs> delusional. Like, oh my gosh. So there was no cat. There was only a cat to list. But um, Mic drop, mic drop. Well, and Noah, to, to blame it on this now non-existent cat, um, all, all Honey the Cat had to do to prevent this disaster was to be. Was to exist, be a thing in reality. Schrodinger's okay, catalyst, Schrodinger's catalyst. Yeah, I was, go ahead. I was going to say something about Schrodinger. Um, I, I have a couple more uh, things I'd like to run by you guys before we really close out, though. Okay. Um, the people becoming children, essentially, in their voice, and the oh. fact that children seem to be... The, the French interpretation of the rules was don't talk to kids, don't talk to children. Is there something to that? Because um, I couldn't piece that one together. Why is it that we shouldn't talk to children... And why is it that when these people become zombies, their voice goes back into being a child again? Did you guys consider any of that? Yeah, I don't, that's interesting. I, I spitballing, but maybe the idea is that they're 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 retreating to an earlier interpretive stage, and they're like they're 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 being taken back to when things were very basic and simple. That that's kind of the defense mechanism for. Uh, sort of when the virus happens, going backwards, as it were, backwards in terms of interpretation, backwards in terms of the complexity of words, maybe? I don't know. I think we hear enough infected, <clears throat> enough conversationalists that aren't using a child's voice to say that it's not a universal vector. Um, I would say, and this is, oh, um, I'd say that when we are hearing someone speaking in a child's voice, it's because the version of the, the infected word that they caught was a child's interpretation of it. Or was he reliving being with Ken and calling out to mommy, <laughs> which could be a really messed up way of looking at it. I don't want to know what's in the box. No. I, I, I think we shouldn't answer that question. I don't, that may be, there may be things too, too deep for us to really think about. And that may be one of them. Just let that one sit. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about it until you had mentioned the fact that he called him, you know, Ken little boy. messed up. You know yeah. what? He deserved to die and I'm happy he's dead. How about that? <laughs> there's That's the, going to be my viewpoint on Ken at this point. I don't have any kind of connection to him. So <laughs> Ken in his sunshine chop, chopper, which is essentially... You know, the, the the scary van that runs down the street with no windows. That's what Ken is. And he is a horrible person. We don't like Ken. 
I love how this is so meta because we are absolutely fucking up anything like a regular interpretation of this film. And that itself is incredibly poetic in some ways. Like we're so off the wall. We're, we're in fanfic mode. This is, this is Ben Carruth event horizon fanfic mode right here. This is, yeah, this is it. In the world of Pontypool, running off the rails into wildly imaginative, speculative, and completely unjustifiable fanfic territory is a survival strategy. That's how we're getting out of this alive, man. Yeah, this is our way of breaking that uh, breaking that glass and getting the zomp survive the zombie apocalypse kit. We just we just avoided the zombie plague. Like I think Grant's already nuts because there were multiple times where it's like, oh, he's a zombie. Oh, he's a zombie. Oh, he's. He a was zombie. fighting it, right? That's what I got. What I got out of that is he's. He, it's happening, but he's. It's something's going on, and he's trying to figure it out. He and it's was looking to under his desk in that booth, like he's freaking hallucinating, like he's Willy Wonka stuff. Like I don't know. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I want to hear your opinion on this. He's an alcoholic in his seventies. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> We're like looking for like these really deep. You know, I mean, did you? Did, yeah. Like, I, I did. I, I I did keep track of the amount of the amount of scotch that scotch he poured that in he his coffee in. at the beginning. It's a substantial amount. Here we are looking for like this really robust, deep interpretation of him freaking out, and and the answer is probably really simple. He just had too much scotch. The the thing, and and there's perhaps a lesson in this that at the end of the day, whether whether we're working our way through Foucault or digging digging way back into Hume. It's worth asking, how drunk was he when he wrote this? <laughs> oh my gosh, and that goes into that whole uh, whole mess where do you even trust the person that is the main person in the film? Are we seeing things from their perspective? He's just a drunken mess and he's misinterpreting all the events of the day and they never actually occurred. Um, it it could have it could just all be nonsense. Yeah, there's there really is like a thousand and one ways to interpret all the shit going on in this movie, and that's probably that's to me that's part of the point. But it's even it's even exacerbated by the point that even though there's all these fucking wild ways we can be interpreting all these little things that's going on, it's it's even better because it's just, the film is so simple too. At the same time, it's all in one setting, and it's it's like three people for the majority of the film, and it's all dialogue. It's such a simple thing but it can be interpreted a thousand and one ways. And actually, I think just underscores sort of the beauty of the film, right? So sort of the underlying point of it. I love it. How pissed would you be if we found out that all the clocks were on the same time because the art department was lazy? <laughs> that is what is so great about films like this when we overanalyze it like this. Some of the stuff just might be because of laziness or broken things, who knows? Although they kept closing up on it as if it meant something, but what yeah, if they just yeah. kept pointing to the nonsense just to be like, <laughs> the the worst the worst part is that in a in the case of a film like this, it could still be it could still serve the movie thematically, even if it was the result of laziness, even if it was the result of apathy or. Oh, uh, oh shit! Uh, oh my God! We've got to knock out that insert shot on the clocks. What? They're all at the same time. How long does it take to fix that? Too long. Shoot it now. Um, still thematically serves the movie. Even that narrative that I just spun about maybe <laughs> this is where the clocks came from. Even that thematically serves the movie. That is so perfect. I, you know, I was listening to a lecture like a few years ago from the teaching company, and it was on. It was a lecture on <clears throat> on Nietzsche, and it was talking about some of the historical stuff about his his writings. And there's a segment where I guess there's like this phrase in when one of his books, 
that shouldn't have been added. I guess it was like maybe added by his sister. It's like one line and nobody knows why it's in there or how to interpret it. It's not connected to anything else that he's talking about. And the, and the line is, I have forgotten my umbrella. I have forgotten my umbrella. And nobody, and, and the people have apparently argued about what that could mean, even though it's accidental, right? So like, I feel like even if the art department fucked up, here we are, like talking about how important it is. Like that's awesome. That's totally. Uh, that's the way this thing. That's the way this stuff works. The the single greatest altar, shrine, temple, monastery to the human ability to impose pattern where none exists is the casino. Um, people invent wholesale religions, entire mythologies in the space of an evening trying to make sense out of their interactions with a random number generator. I think that Noam Chomsky is an important person to consider in this film, though, when we're talking about Grant Mazzi and uh, the casino stuff, even. Uh, he's the media, right? He's the person who is telling us about our day and telling us about our bus schedules and all the stuff that's going on in our lives that we need to know about. But he's also manufacturing some things. So this, this goes into what Noam Chomsky did talk about with the media. Is, is the media reporting what's going on or is the media making what's going on? Ah, Ben, you did this to me. Is Grant just delving into what Chomsky's been talking about all these days? And he is a linguistic person. It, yeah. Thank I feel you. Like, you did this to me. I, I feel like somewhere Honey the Cat is like rubbing its paws together going, I made this. I made this. <laughs> All right, so let's let's give this movie a rating. Really simple scale, one to ten. Uh, I'm gonna give this movie a a nine. I'm gonna give this movie a nine. I'm gonna give it a nine because the just like Tyler had mentioned early on in the film, you, the, this is one of those few horror movies that the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. Um, the other films that we've been doing aren't necessarily like that. I may be able to say, for example, in It Follows, that I can pull more things out the more I watch it. Same thing with with Let Me In, Let the Right One In. I go, oh, I never thought of that. But this movie's different. This movie is more enjoyable the more I watch it uh, and, and I don't have it on in the background I'm just falling asleep the more I actually listen and think about it I get more out of it just like all these other films but I also just it's better every time I watch it the acting is better the enjoyment component is better uh, there's there's apparently a billion and one ways we can interpret every fucking thing happening happening in it now so I feel like it's just gonna sort of spiral for me I mean you ask me in a year I'm gonna be like it's a 9.5 it's a 9.6 or I'm gonna be in my 70s talking about u-boats I'm gonna be like Ponty pulls a 10 you know uh so for that reason I think I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a nine a straight 9.0 and that's really close to uh to it follows which is my highest rating of 9.5 all right so this one for me definitely gets solid eight um you know obviously for all of the reasons that you just mentioned yes like the more you watch it the more you enjoy it um, I think the more that I understand it, right? And that's that's part of it too, because like you watch it and then you see things at the end and then you watch it again. And then the things at the beginning make more sense because of the things that you saw at the end the last time you saw it. Um, and also definitely just because of all of the other components. Like when I, when I discuss this film, like I understand more about linguistics and I get other people's perspectives and I can look at it from multiple different ways. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the per symbol because you can attach different meanings to it at different points in time at, you know, when whoever is watching it, even just for your own life, the same person watching it at different points in time will attach different meanings to this movie. Um, and it's really just fantastic artistically, analytically, um, really great. So yeah, it gets an eight from me. 
this film is kind of a lullaby in a way because I can go to sleep to it. Um, but it's also something that makes my brain fire off and it actually makes me think of there's a scene from Third Rock from the Sun where Dick gives Mary, if you guys have ever seen it, sorry if you haven't, they're both professors at a college. Dick gives Mary a thimble because she collects thimbles and he's like, oh, here's a thimble, you know, you like to collect these ancient things. This is a old thimble from some ancient civilization. And she starts to laugh really hard. And he's like, what's so funny? And she's like, they're not actually thimbles. They're armor for your nipples. And she starts cracking up hysterically. I feel like this movie does that for me, where it's probably supposed to mean something else, but <laughs> I'm interpreting it as a thimble, and I'm fine with that. Like, I, I, I like that it's a, a weird film that could be seen as many different things. It's so I have to give it a 9.5. That might be the highest I've given Wow! Any film here, uh, it, 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 a huge enjoyment. Loved it, and I loved hearing your guys's interpretation of it as well. It's this is fabulous. I'm going to say a solid seven point five, and it would be eight, but for Doctor Mendez. Doctor Doctor Mendez was an uh, an exposition character, which is um, a pretty unforgivable sin, uh, in for me. Uh, when you have somebody who, when you have somebody that you introduce who has no purpose but to explain things to the characters and to the audience and then die, um, you, yeah, that's that that's was for what, the Americans. That was for the Americans who watched. That's what that's what knocks it down to a seven point five for me. Now that aside, okay. um, that aside, I have to say, uh, this is a case perfect example of know how much money you have to spend and write something that can actually be done in that price bracket. Uh, they did a fantastic job keeping this as a contained story. They did a fantastic job uh, getting heavy hitting cast for every role that has a significant amount of screen time. Um, and uh, thematically, it's an endless... Thematically, this thing is like a Rubik's cube with one, of, uh, one pair of stickers that have been swapped. You will spend the rest of your life trying to get this thing to line up properly, and it will never happen. And that's fine. That's fine, because the time that you're spending fiddling with it is the real point of the movie. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I will continue to enjoy it. Even if I never watch this movie again, I will continue to enjoy it, because I'm going to be fiddling with that defective Rubik's Cube in one way or another is as long as I still have enough brain cells to do so. All right. Well, uh, thanks for watching. Uh, check us out at the Deadly Analysis Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we have a lot of content that we post there. Our next film will be the Australian horror film, The Loved Ones, which is an incredibly demented and twisted film. Uh, my movies are coming to an end. We are going to be moving on to analyzing films from uh, some of the other people in the podcast. So I'd be interested to see the differences between the sort of things that scare me, that speak to me, versus everyone else. Uh, and as I hit my last two films, they are going to devolve from films that can be analyzed very thoroughly to pretty much visceral blood spatter horror. Not many movies like that I enjoy, but The Loved Ones is going to be one of them. It's one of maybe two that are like that, that I like. So we'll be watching that one next. Uh, thanks for watching and have a good night.